Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This is the fifth in our series of talks presented by Connecticut's Old State House about Connecticut's Constitution of 1818. In this episode, Judges Henry Cohn and John Blue tell us why the Constitution of 1818 matters today. Judge Blue gives us the legal context, while Judge Cohn gives us a judge's perspective on the Constitution's Declaration of Rights and what they say about jury trials, freedom of religion, and education. There are four other podcasts on the Constitution of 1818, which give a comprehensive account of this landmark document. In episode 45, I talk about the broader cultural context that led to a state constitutional convention. In episode 55, Wesleyan University Professor Emeritus Richard Buell takes us on a deep dive into the 1818 Constitution's political history. In episode 59, Professor Robert Imholt provides a historian's perspective on religion and the Constitution. And in episode 56, legal scholar Wesley Horton describes the constitutional debates. That's episode 45, 55, 56, and 59. But right now, let's listen to why the Constitution of 1818 matters today. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. Welcome to Connecticut's Old State House. My name is Rebecca Tabor Conover, and I'm the head of public programs here. And it's my delight to welcome you here for the conclusion of our series on commemorating the Constitution of 1818. We want to thank the funders of the series, Connecticut Humanities. I especially want to thank our friends at Connecticut Explored who have co-sponsored this series. Connecticut Explored is the magazine of Connecticut history, and I'd like to introduce Mary Donahue. Thanks, Rebecca. As I was promoting uh, the series, this Constitution of 1818 series on Facebook for Connecticut Explored magazine and our partner, the Old State House. Facebook sent me a message. I don't normally get messages from Facebook, by the way. But uh, it said that I was not authorized to promote posts that were political or of national significance. So I politely wrote Facebook back, and I said, well, we're a history magazine. This stuff happened 200 years ago. But Facebook persisted. I had to be vetted. I submitted our credentials and was approved. But on second thought, I've decided Facebook had it right. The trigger words like constitution, voting rights, and religious equality had triggered their review. These were important 200 years ago and still extremely important today as our speakers will reveal. So Rebecca, take it away. Today's program is entitled Why the Constitution of 1818 Matters Today. We're really pleased today to have our speakers, Judge John Blue and Judge Henry S. Cohn. Judge John Blue graduated from Carleton College and Stanford Law School. He was admitted to the California and Connecticut bars in 1974, and in 2004, he earned a Master's of Law in Judicial Policy from the University of Virginia School of Law. In 1989, Judge Blue was appointed judge of the Connecticut Superior Court. Judge Henry S. 
Cohen was appointed to the Connecticut Superior Court in 1997 and has served in the Criminal, Civil, Juvenile, and Tax and Administrative Appeals Divisions of the Court. In November of 2015, he was designated a judge trial referee and currently serves in that position for New Britain. A Hartford native, Judge Cohen earned his BA from Johns Hopkins University with honors in 1967 and graduated from the University of Connecticut School of Law. They authored an article entitled, What We Got in the Constitution of 1818, that is included in the Connecticut Explorer's wonderful issue on um, the Constitution of 1818. And with those introductions, I'm pleased to turn it over to our speakers today. I'm the first member of the duo here. I'm John Blue. Thank you for the introduction, Rebecca. I'm always reminded of um, what Yogi Berra said when he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He said, I would like to thank all those who made this necessary. Uh, so uh, here I am. And what we're going to talk about is the 1818 Constitution. We're celebrating the 200th anniversary of it this year, obviously. In very brief form, the Constitution of Connecticut was uh, hammered out in a constitutional convention in this very building in August and September of 1818 and approved by the uh, people of Connecticut and narrowly approved in a referendum in October of 1818. So we're now into the uh, second month of the third century of the, um, of the Connecticut Constitution. And what we're going to talk about is uh, what led to the Constitution, what happened in um, 1818, and the Constitution of 1818 itself. And Henry and I are dividing up uh, our presentation in the way, in the sense that um, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background of what happened in 1818 and uh, talk about the, the basic way the Constitution was set up and the Declaration of Rights. And then Henry will talk about the most important aspects of the Constitution of 1818 itself, which impacted education and religion. Both um, have had enormous consequences for this state. So uh, let me just start by um, asking a question that I don't know if anybody, including me, can answer, and that is, why does it say on our license plates that we are the Constitution state? Connecticut obviously has a Constitution. We wouldn't be here uh, if it didn't. But when you think about it, I believe that every state has a Constitution. And in fact, as I'll explain in a minute, Connecticut was kind of late to the game. And so it doesn't make any particular sense for us to claim monopoly over constitutionalism uh, in the United States. But I suppose the original reason, aside from uh, having something to put on on a license plate was the fact that Connecticut, over its course of uh, 300 plus years, has had lots and lots of constitutions. The original Hartford Colony uh, in 1638 adopted what it called the Fundamental Orders, which were a kind of bare bones constitution for the governance of that colony. And then, uh, much more importantly for future generations, in 1662, Charles II granted the then colony of Connecticut, which was shortly to include the New Haven colony, a charter. And that charter uh, set up uh, a pattern for the colony's governance by a general assembly. And that 
persisted formally until 1818, but in terms of the way uh, that it was set up, giving each town uh, more or less equal representation in the General Assembly, its influence lasted until um, Baker versus Carr in 1965, when we had to have a, a new constitution to apportion the legislature in a constitutional way. So in the, mean, in, the, in the midst of that, we have the Constitution of 1818. So we've had lots and lots of constitutions, and maybe that's the reason for the Constitution state. But the Constitution of 1818 stands out in one uh, important respect, and that is it's the first written constitution that was labeled as such because the uh, fundamental orders and the, um, the Charter of 1662 were certainly in writing, but they were not considered at the time to be constitutions, that thought only came about in, in, in retrospect. So what happened in 1818 uh, was really important. To kind of detract a little from Connecticut's claim to being a constitution state, here's an important fact. You might ask, why 1818, since the Connecticut was one of the 13 original colonies, uh, and it attained independence or proclaimed independence uh, with the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And uh, by 1783, the Revolutionary War was over. Uh, Connecticut was more or less an independent nation until the United States Constitution was ratified in 1789. So why didn't Connecticut have a constitution then? And that question is magnified by the fact that of the 13 original colonies, uh, 11 adopted constitutions either shortly before or shortly after 1776. Uh, and those constitutions actually were kind of a model uh, for the United States Constitution when it was drafted in the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Connecticut didn't have one and Rhode Island didn't have one. And uh, why is that? I suppose the reason is that Connecticut was then, like it is now, the land of steady habits and they didn't want to do anything hasty. Uh, uh, in fact, they were pretty satisfied with the things as they were. So in October of 1776, the General Assembly passed a statute that said that Connecticut would continue to be governed by the Charter of 1662. And the only exception would be that we were now independent from Great Britain. But the charter government would continue on. And in very brief form, charter government, as thus approved, was a pure democracy. I'm going to give you a fancy word for Connecticut's government prior to 1818. And that word is unipartite. We did not have a separation of powers. There was no separate judicial and executive branch. There were governors and there were judges, but they were all subservient to the General Assembly. Uh, and the General Assembly was elected originally every six months, and then after a while, every year or so, it was like a pure democracy. And the General Assembly, for example, uh, going up until 1818, could overrule judicial decisions which is amazing to think about. The governor was a member of the upper chamber, the what we would now call the Senate, they called it the council, and did not have much in the way of independent powers. It was all in the general, power was all in the General Assembly. And so this was both for better and for worse, a pure democracy. But there was one other feature of uh, Connecticut politics 
uh, which became really important and more and more important as uh, the 19th century uh, developed, and that was what we'd call the standing order. And the standing order involved the, an established church. The congregational church was an established church, which meant that the taxpayers funded it, and the congregational ministers uh, were very important, and there's uh, at least anecdotal evidence that they got together and smoked and uh, drank rum and marched in parades and decided who would be the next governor. They don't sound like the Methodist ministers of, of my own rural youth in Minnesota, uh, but the congregational ministers were, uh, were very politically powerful. And of course, controlled, uh, subsidized by taxpayer money, which would not be at all accepted in today's uh, society. So to move things forward, although uh, we did not change our constitution in 1776 or any time immediately thereafter, uh, by the early 19th century, Connecticut was becoming more urbanized. You had the, the Industrial Revolution going on. You had factories like Eli Whitney's factory in New Haven that drew more and more people to it. It was becoming less obvious to many people in Connecticut that the congregational church should be subsidized by tax dollars. It was also becoming much less obvious why New Haven, which probably had a population of 10 or 12,000 at the time, uh, should have the same number of representatives in the General Assembly as Union, uh, which would have had a much uh, lesser population. And there was continuing ferment for a, a number of years, and then a very important event happened, and that was the War of 1812 which many of the Federalists who controlled Connecticut politics opposed. And you might have heard of the Hartford Convention of 1814, which took place in this building. The Hartford Con Convention passes resolution against the War of 1812. A couple of years later, Andrew Jackson wins the Battle of New Orleans. The, uh, the War of 1812 all of a sudden very, becomes very popular. So the Federalists are sunk. And in their place comes what was called the Toleration Party, led by Oliver Wolcott. Jr., George Washington, second uh, Secretary of the Treasury after Alexander Hamilton, and uh, he comes in with the proposal that there's going to be a constitutional convention and we're going to get rid of the established church, and that is what's happened. Wolcott's elected in 1817, and by 1818 we have the constitutional convention which takes place here. Uh, my time is limited, and I'm not going to take uh, lots of time uh, describing all of the elements of the new constitution, but uh, suffice it to say that there are several important aspects, one of which is that there's now a separation of powers. That is, there's a separate judicial branch and a separate executive branch as well as the legislative branch. The judges now have good behavior tenure. It wasn't to last for very long, but it was like the federal judges had, at least until age 70. The governor is independently elected. He's kind of a weak uh, fairly weak gubernatorial powers at first, but at least the governor is a separate branch, and we have a separation of powers. I've already mentioned the judges get good behavior tenure, so they, there's more uh, judicial independence, and there are uh, special um, provisions, which Henry will talk about, relating to religion and education. One other feature, which has proved to be very important over the years, is there's a declaration of rights of individual rights, which were kind of recognized before informally, but are now written into the Constitution. And that has turned out to have profound effects over the years. I should say that 
the people who drafted the Connecticut Constitution, in spite of their high ideals, were kind of cons on the conservative side. And uh, one of the big problems with the pre-1818 state of affairs was the fact that the General Assembly was malapportioned. That is, that New Haven had the same, or Hartford would have the same representation as Union or many other small towns. That didn't change. They kept the same apportionment as before, and that was to last until 1965 when we finally had to adopt a new constitution to comport with federal constitutional requirements. And they were very conservative, and I don't think that the Declaration of Rights was intended to be revolutionary. It was intended to kind of encapsulate rights that had already been recognized informally. But over the years, the, the fact that we have a Declaration of Rights, which protects things like uh, due process, the right to a fair trial, the right to an attorney, the right to free speech, has proved enormously important. When it's combined with what we like to think we have, and which I, I do think we have, which is an independent judiciary that can enforce those rights. So that uh, we are not a pure democracy, uh, both for better or for worse anymore, that uh, the, uh, the General Assembly, democratically elected, is limited in its ability to pass laws that conflict with the Constitution. They cannot pass laws, for example, that uh, infringe upon free speech, We've had, in the last few years, uh, very dramatic examples of rights in our Connecticut Constitution being enforced by the courts in what I'm going to call an anti-democratic way. And I don't say that disparagingly, uh, but the whole nature of a Bill of Rights or a Declaration of Rights is to put some limits on uh, what a majoritarian legislature can do. Um, I think I read in the paper this morning that this is the 10th anniversary of the Kerrigan decision, which allowed same-sex marriage, uh, something that I think has been very meaningful to a great many people in Connecticut. This overturned, obviously, many centuries of what was formerly considered to be established law, but it was done to underline uh, the requirements of due process in our Connecticut Constitution and our Declaration of Rights. Uh, similarly, for better or for worse, uh, different people have different views on this, but a few years ago in the Santiago decision, the Connecticut Supreme Court essentially found uh, Connecticut's application of the death penalty to be unconstitutional because it violated the basic rights against uh, cruel and unusual punishment that are implicitly recognized in our state constitution. Again, it's an anti-majoritarian ruling. There's some reason to believe that maybe even a majority of people in Connecticut might have theoretically supported capital punishment at the time the San Diego decision was rendered, although that's a little bit hard to tell. But be that as it may, a majority approval is not everything. The question is, what is in keeping with our fundamental ideas of fairness that are embodied in the, in the Connecticut Constitution? And it's because of our Declaration of Rights that our courts have the ability to enforce uh, those kinds of norms. So let me end with, with a couple of different observations about this anti-majoritarian aspect of our Constitution. One is that although, if you put it on a chart, the pre-1818 government of Connecticut in which the General Assembly had complete and unfettered powers 
and was elected every year, uh, seems like an example of pure democracy. And the various shackles that, at least in retrospect, our 1818 Constitution ha has put on the General Assembly uh, seems anti-democratic. In fact, it's not so clear that that's the case. Because what was found prior to 1818 is that a few actors kind of ran the show. This, there was a standing order, uh, a very powerful group of ministers and elected officials that really kind of ran the show. And they were actually being elected, the same people were being elected all the time. Some people were elected for decades on end uh, and, and uh, became more and more powerful. And by adding a separation of powers, so that there's an independent judiciary and an independent executive, you're actually adding more voices to the table. That in the long run, as long as the General Assembly, the governor, and the judges remember that this is a democratic constitution that is meant to represent the people of the state of Connecticut, there are actually more voices being heard in the kind of mix of things than fewer voices. And in a, in a strange kind of way, the various shackles that our constitutional structure has put on, on the General Assembly may, in the long run, make a government of Connecticut more democratic rather than less democratic because more voices are being heard. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that there's a lot of talk at the federal level as to whether there should be a living constitution or a, uh, a constitution ruled by the dead hand of the past. This is um, something that is talked about both in popular and in academic circles all the time. In Connecticut, at least my own view, is that we have a living constitution, and it was designed to be such that notions of due process, fair play, what is cruel, isn't is not cruel and unusual punishment, change over time. And uh, the Constitution of 1818 was meant to embody that concept. And I'm just going to read you something that Henry and I discovered in the archives of the Connecticut Historical Society a few years ago. Uh, the, the working draft of the 1818 Constitution was prepared by Governor Wolcott himself. And it was tinkered with by the um, Constitutional Convention, but a lot of his draft went into effect. And attached to the draft that he sent to the General Assembly was a memorandum that we actually found. It was pretty exciting. It was written in Governor Wolcott's own hand. And he says about the Constitution, it was designed to embrace provisions on all our ancient fundamental statutes varied to suit existing opinions. And so that there was an idea of some sort of at least slow evolution all along. So let me end with this. I think the Constitution of Connecticut uh, perhaps was never intended to be a, a dramatic radical document. It was intended to at least encapsulate many of the ideas at the time, but with the, idea, with the understanding that things would change over time, it was meant to be enforced by an independent judiciary, and that constitution was always with us. So as I've been preparing this, it reminded me of one of my favorite poems, and that is a poem by Wallace Stevens called The River of Rivers in Connecticut.
written in the, um, I believe, the ni early 1950s. While Stevens was actually a lawyer, but he worked for an insurance company, and he was more interested in metaphysical problems than constitutional problems. And his river of river in Connecticut, a spoiler alert here, is the river of life that flows uh, through us. But um, he says, uh, he says of th this of the river of river in Connecticut. It is not to be seen beneath the appearances that tell of it. The steeple at Farmington stands glistening and Haddam shines and sways. It is the third commonness with light and air, a curriculum, a vigor, a local abstraction. Call it once more a river an unnamed flowing. And that river, that unnamed flowing, is our constitution for us in the legal profession. It's always with us. It flows through Connecticut, and I think it develops over time. So that's what I have to say, and I'm going to turn the floor over to my distinguished colleague. Thank you. Thank you, John. This is a good spot for a break. When we come back, Judge Cohn talks about the Declaration of Rights, in particular, what the 1818 and 1965 constitutions have to say about the right to a jury trial, freedom of religion, and an education. But first, I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. Let me start out by saying that one of the topics, or one of the ideas behind this talk was to show a equivalency between the uh, 1818 Constitution and the 65 Constitution. So one of the simplest ideas or ways of seeing this is to look at jury trials. And what did the 1818 Constitution say in this Declaration of Rights, which John has talked about? It said that the right to a jury trial shall be inviolate. Exact same language appears in our 1965 Constitution. We have a link the other little interesting thing about jury trials is that how do we know whether you can have a jury trial in the state of Connecticut? Well, if back then, back in 1818, if your wagon negligently hit some other person's wagon, you could be sued. Today, it would be a car. So we know that in the, in the case of the 1818 Constitution, they were still talking about some kind of negligence that you could have a jury trial. But that didn't apply across the board. How do we know? This is what uh, the most, one of the most recent Supreme Court of Connecticut cases, uh, it dates from just a few months ago. It says, the plaintiff's claim presents a question of law over which we have plenary review. Our Constitution has consistently construed by Connecticut courts to mean that if there was a right to a jury trial, under the state constitution, the court must ascertain 
whether the action being tried is similar in nature to the action that could have been tried to a jury in 1818. So that's a test. How do you know whether there could be a jury trial in Connecticut on the topic? You have to look to the 1818 Constitution. And that means that things like the negligence, the car, or the wagon, or whatever, yes. But if you have a divorce, no. They did have divorces back in 1818, but they didn't allow jury trials. In eviction, no. Too bad, you can't get a jury trial because back in 1818 they also had evictions, but they didn't have jury trial. And there's even some other things about when, when you can sue the state, when does sovereign immunity apply, what do you need? You look to the 1818 Constitution. That, that's an easy way of seeing a link if you're talking about how did the 1818 Constitution transfer to the 1965 Constitution. Jury trials is one example of the test being exactly the same and looking to the 1818 Constitution. Well, let's take a look at um, what uh, Judge Blue was talking about, the religion. And he made a very good point, and that was that, and I think uh, Professor Umholt, who's with us today, made this very point too. When it came to the disestablishment of the Congregational Church, and they were going to put some rights of religious freedom, this was not something which had been thought of, oh my goodness, for the first time. There was a long oral or thought tradition there in the first place. So, of course, Thomas Jefferson, in 1777, his notes in Virginia, was writing about uh, religious freedom. But in Connecticut, we had Zephania Swift, who wrote in 1795, he wrote this two-volume treatise called The System of Laws. And in that, he says... Well, up to this point, we've talked about various Christian religions having rights and freedoms, but I think they also extend to Mohammedans and to Jews and to Brahmins and so forth. So in 1795, you had the exact same idea. So when it came to the Declaration of Rights, Section 3, it was hardly debated at all. Everybody agreed that in our Constitution should be a provision that said the free exercise clause. It's very, very similar to the uh, U.S. Constitution, Article 1. Everyone has a free exercise of religion. And there was very little debate about this. It came from the traditions, and even today, we see very little cases on this Section 3. It's identical in the 1965 Constitution, the exact same language, as long as you're not licentious, they called it in 1818, unless you're not having a religion that foments revolution or crimes, you can have any kind of religion that you want. And they specifically mention these non-Christian religions. And Oliver Walcott Jr., who we heard, came up with a draft for the uh, 1818 Constitution, in the Declaration of Right, Section 4 proposed something like a, an establishment clause, which is also part of our first, U.S. First Amendment, that no preference shall be given to any religious sect or mode of worship. In other words, not only could you have a free exercise, but no church or group or religion could be established above any other. 
sounded great, but there were Congregationalists at the convention just because they were going along with the disestablishment of the church didn't mean that they were going to sit idly by and have their whole thought processes wiped out. They were strong in their beliefs. And they mounted an attack on Section 4. And they changed Section 4. They got the votes. Very close vote, but they got the votes. So that Section 4 said, no preference should be given to any Christian sect or mode of worship. And that changed things. That really meant nothing. It didn't have any rights. It didn't give anybody anything. It cut out all these non-Christian religions. And essentially, why did they do it? Because they were protesting. They were putting a flag up there that they had a good old time religion, Puritanism, and it was not going to be wiped out by whatever happened at the 1818 Constitution. This language in Section 4 really became a nullity after our U.S. 14th Amendment, which made the First Amendment apply to the states and the Establishment Clause apply to the states. So it really had no meaning at all, but it lasted in our Connecticut Constitution from 1818 all the way up to 1965 when it was removed. And uh, that might have had some effect on the freedom of religion or the other religions. In fact, the Jewish rights, as we know, were not put into effect until a statute was passed in 1843. Now, in Article 7, which was headed of religion, this is again is the 1818 Constitution of religion, it did also announce that this established church was no longer in effect. The taxation of all the citizens to pay for this church was avoided. Now each church could put a tax on their own members. It also made it a lot harder to leave that church that you were in. You had to resign through the church clerk in order to get out of that religion. But they did have this idea that they were separating or disestablishing the standard congregational church of its day. 1965 added an establishment clause in Connecticut's constitution, which says no preference shall be given to one religion over another. I think maybe our John Blue had a little something on that with the Good Friday liquor sales. Were you involved in that? I was uh, involved in a later case. Yes. Yeah. And, and, when, and the uh, Connecticut case held that uh, you can't forbid the selling of liquor on Good Friday because it's, it would be a mixture of uh, state and religion. Anyway, that's basically the religious part of the uh, 1818 Constitution. As far as the education part, that's Article 8. Comparing the two, again, saying what's in 1818 and what's in 1965, the first couple sections of the 1965 Constitution have added the right to free public education and some more on the University of Connecticut. But the 1818 Constitution and the 1965 Constitution retain the preservation of Yale. Yale was given a charter and was preserved in the 1818 Constitution and the 1965 Constitution, that there's that link. The other thing which is also very important, is the school fund. Now, Judge Blue mentioned that um, the charter of 
1662, put the state of Connecticut, it wasn't Connecticut then, it was a colony of Connecticut, good old King Charles didn't like the fact that the New Haven colony had killed off his, his father, and it abolished the colony of New Haven, but it gave the colony of Connecticut land all across, all the way to the Pacific coast. And that meant that the people that were living in Ohio really were, uh, their land was owned by the state of Connecticut. So the Ohio people, Cleveland, Ohio area, paid Connecticut over a million dollars. This same fellow, an interesting man that had been so in favor of the um, congregational position and had supported having this declaration that we um, know Christian sect, his name was Treadwell, and he also was a governor of Connecticut. He negotiated this money from the Ohio region, and it became something known as a school fund. They were very concerned, all the people of the Constitutional Convention, that this would be called a school fund. They had a million dollars. They're going to spend it on something else, roads or something like that. So they created something called a school fund, which was only to be spent on school education. The exact same provision is in our 1965 Constitution. And the fact that education was so primary and so important became part of cases in Connecticut. And if you remember the case of Horton versus Mescola to establish the centrality of education and the equality of education funding and so forth, and Chef O'Neill is another one that talked about discrimination and so forth. What do they always talk about? The 1818 Constitution and the creation of the school fund. So we talked about jury trials, we talked about religion, we talked about education, this fact that the really today we're operating under the 1818 Constitution. Of course, uh, we had to change it all because of the apportionment. Well, the House of Representatives gave the exact same two, usually two, members for every town. That was uh, in 1818, it went all the way up to 1965 when the Supreme Court of the United States that can't do that anymore. Our friend uh, Judge Blue uh, had um, Wall Stevens. I want to finish a little bit with Mark Twain. Now, Mark Twain, you know, he wrote the Connecticut Yankee King out of his court. And the Yankee is always annoyed with what is going on there. And he takes on, in, in England, of course, he blasts uh, the monarchy and the church. He's furious with them. Why do people get forced to observe the, and to worship the monarchy and worship the church? They're failed institutions. They're just like rags. He says the real loyalty ought to be to one's country. And he continues, I, this is the Yankee, I was from Connecticut where the 1818 Constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. And when they have at all times an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. Uh, even Mark Twain would be happy that we came here today to talk about the 1818 Constitution. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, either of us will answer some questions. What does it take to change the Constitution? And why did we need a new constitution uh, in 1965? Well, let me just start out by asking, answering your last question about 1965, which Henry mentioned. We had to change 
the Constitution in 1965 because the, the federal courts had ruled the Connecticut Constitution unconstitutional under the federal Constitution, didn't provide equal voting rights because uh, different towns had the same representation regards of their population, so it had to be changed. I think that's the only time in our um, the last 200 years that the Constitution had to be changed. But even then, the change really only related to apportionment. Most of the rest of the 18th Constitution was not affected. Uh, in terms of changing the Constitution, uh, you may or may not know that we adopted two constitutional amendments just last week. Constitutional amendments in Connecticut and most states tend to be about what I, I, I don't want to say this disparagingly, but relatively trivial or very individual matters as distinct from great concepts of due process or something like that. Uh, but they have to be proposed by the General Assembly, and if there's not a supermajority, by two General Assemblies in a row, and then voted on by the people, which is what we did last week. Why didn't they do that for the 1818 Constitution? Just change the, the, the uh, articles that were unconstitutional. There were a few other things they wanted to uh, correct and add to and so forth. And yeah, I, I would just say two things. First, the way the General Assembly is constituted is, is so central to the Constitution, it made, uh, made more sense. Also, between 1818 and 1965, there had been probably about three dozen amendments. So rather than make it completely confusing, they kind of synthesized the last 150 years of amendments into the new Constitution. Yes, sir. Does the Constitution have amendments? Yes. How many? I think we have about 30 now, don't we? Yes. Yeah. As Judge Blue was saying, it's much easier at a state level to amend our own state constitution than the national one, which you have to get two-thirds of each the U.S. Senate, U.S. House, then three-fourths of the states. And we've had a few, like, unfortunately, um, the Equal Rights Amendment, which, never, which we have one in our state constitution, but never passed federally. So there is no federal Equal Rights Amendment. So that, that would be an example of how it's easier to get one at one level than it is at the other level. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening. We thank Henry Cohn and John Blue and Connecticut's Old State House. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman. Buy the special fall 2018 issue of Connecticut Explored, commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Constitution of 1818, including a pull-out poster of the full text of the Constitution annotated by members of the Supreme Court Historical Society at ConnecticutExplored.org. Find a link to curriculum materials and further reading at ConnecticutExplored.org slash Constitution. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at Bowman.legal. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.